0: Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I'm sitting down again today with Mr. Max Hillebrand, and we're going to continue our journey into the ethics of liberty written by Rothbard. And today we're going to start talking about the inner contradictions of the state. So I'll open this with Rothbard's opening line in this chapter, and he says, quote, A major problem with discussions of the necessity of government is the fact that all such discussions necessarily take place within a context of centuries of state existence and state rule, rule to which the public has become habituated. So it's really hard to talk about the inner contradictions of the thing that is taken as a certainty, <laughs> I think, in the minds of most people. Uh, as you were just telling me offline, that the, actually the very next line he says, the rye couplings of the twin certainties in the popular motto, death and taxes, demonstrates that the public has resigned itself to the existence of the state as an evil but inescapable force of nature to which there is no alternative. But that's just not the case, right? I mean, this isn't a foregone conclusion. We have thrown off the yoke of institutions before. So why haven't we done this with the state yet?
1: Yeah, that's such a big question. And it seems to be like a a mass psychosis in a Mm -hmm. sense, right? Uh, which is a a big question of how did we end up here? Um, And I, I think what is kind of the, well, one thing that we can realize is that humans are incredibly adaptive creatures and we can get used to pretty much anything right. um you know just from the fact that we can start eating basically anything and after a while it becomes delicious think of coffee or beer you know first time you eat it it's mm-hmm. horrible after a while you come to love it and you can't mm-hmm. stop <laughs> you know uh, or, or prisoners uh, uh being uh, you know tortured and uh and really harassed uh they kind of uh, it it becomes the new default, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and then even after uh, it, you kind of crave it back, and and some post traumatic stress. Uh, th- so th- it's kind of you know the I think the beauty of of humans incredibly adaptive and uh, really being able to move quickly and to to sustain even in very adversarial environments. But that just means if there has been a, a temporally very long. Uh, period of of harassment and and, and lies, so to say, uh, then realizing that this is actually not the the uh, not the only way, not the inevitable uh, way that things ought to be or or things can be, mm-hmm. and uh, to to realize that wait a second we can actually create a, a different scenario uh, of interaction is uh, yeah that that takes some time, but you know once you see it you cannot unsee it. Um, uh, you know once the prisoner escapes uh, or once the the man crawls out of the cave uh, you're you're a changed man and uh, that's that's very difficult to put you back into that mindset after you've escaped it
0: yeah and you know it seems like to rothbard's point property is the crux of this whole issue right it, and the state at least ostensibly exists to provide some type of security to property. Although I think in this chapter, he very quickly argues that there are irreconcilable contradictions within that uh, s- supposed value proposition of the state. So, you know, I'm just back to Bitcoin. It's like, okay, without a property. Specifically, money, right, which is the most important form of property that is decoupled from violence in some meaningful way, that the state just seems to be almost an inevitable outcome of human interaction. Um, but maybe, maybe I'm not thinking of this entirely. And I, I, I'm this calls to mind the piece you recommended, The Myth of National Defense, which I have not read yet. So maybe there's something in there that that um dispels this illusion yeah so of course the
1: ability to or first of all yes everything is about property rights um and or more accurately everything is about uh conflict of scarce resource allocation Mm -hmm. now scarce resources are tools with which we can solve problems uh, and they can only be applied to to solving one tool. So, which are you going to apply it to? And who is going to choose which which uh, goal to to seek uh, with this mean? Yeah. Um, and it, it, that's always a conflictuous thing. The the question is just how, how are we going to deal with that conflict? Um, and I think the the option of the state is perfectly described in this analogy of Rothbard here in the beginning of the chapter. Or he kind of presumes that, let's say, you know, we start over. We just have aliens all of a sudden appearing on the planet, and now they realize that there are scarce resources and that there is conflict, um, and that humans can apply force and violence and aggression to uh, to settle that conflict, uh, not peacefully. Um, and so they they make this pact, or, or, or one person proposes this pact that uh, they all give away. Their ability to apply force. You know, you all give away your weapons, um, and and you cannot legally use force uh, uh, in what in some matter. You know, if there is a conflict over resources, we all go to the Jones family, um, and only the Jones family can use force and has all the weapons, and only the jo- Jones family can ultimately decide how to allocate scarce resources, and uh, and you know. That that's kind of the, the new starting point. Uh, now, would everyone agree to that? Um, well, you know, arguably some might. But the the obvious kind of contradiction comes in here. That sure, the system works great if the Jones family is is honest and not malicious. You know, if it's a trusted third party that does not break the trust. But ultimately, uh, if it does, then the whole system breaks down spectacularly. Uh, because all of a sudden the evil guy is the only one with the guns and with the, and is the only one who can justly uh, apply force and all the others are simply you know victims who are literally defenseless because they have given up their their weapons and their tools to enforce uh the uh, their property rights um so th- this is you know the state is basically this example writ large uh, and it was not decided on in this one creed you know it was uh It has been enacted by humans for centuries. And the question is uh, why, you know, why do humans keep playing this very stupid game? If Mm -hmm. you think about it. Um, and uh, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, that's not just individual psychology. That's like meta psychology and, uh, you know, maybe some massive post-traumatic stress uh, or like stress event led to the psychosis. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I guess that's up, up for speculation.
0: Yeah, I like that you're using the term mass psychosis here because that's definitely been something that is that is recurrent throughout human history. Um, and it seems like it's a combination, right? It's a combination of, I guess, violence being an effective means of acquiring wealth from others. And so the threat, so we could say violence, it actually works when the rubber meets the road, so to speak, you could come into someone's land, kill them and then make the land your own. But then also using the threat of violence, the state or other specialists in violence have managed to corral human action into certain patterns that habituates the existence of the state where they never even have to use the force. Ultimately, people just resign themselves to paying taxes and following orders and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really interesting to look at it that way. And I think this will follow that line of reason about the Jones family becoming kind of the de facto state. Rothbard connects that into this. Um. I guess, thought experiment in a way that kind of obliterates the idea of limited government too. You know, we the United States is premised on this ideal of limited government. We have different branches. They all have checks and balances. You know, we're taught all this in school, but he says this, he says, quote, if in fact we cast a cold and logical eye on the theory of limited government, we can see it for the chimera that it really is for the unrealistic and inconsistent utopia that it holds forth. In the first place, there is no reason to assume that a compulsory monopoly of violence, once acquired by the Jones family or by any state rulers, will remain limited to protection of person and property. Certainly, historically, no government has long remained limited in this way. And my, I mean, and he goes further into this, but I'll just say that at the beginning, The foundational documents of any government are just these ideals scribbled on paper. And it becomes fairly obvious to me that when you've given the Jones family or any state all of the guns and all of the power, they have every incentive in the world to deviate from the principles that are scribbled on that constitutional document. And that that incentive model reflects accurately the history of government that we've seen. You know, and the the question is
1: limited, you know, other other than like, what's, what's, what's the thing that you want to limit? And, you know, as, as the state is defined as the monopolist on violence, it's basically the state has the power to ultimately decide where to allocate resources. So that's what we grant the state. And then we limit what exactly, because we just granted the state ultimate power. Mm -hmm. You get to decide about everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, you, what else could you give him that needs to be limited? Right.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm trying to like get it through my again i think we've talked about this a bit before but if government is not is is the monopoly on violence a natural monopoly or is it a legal monopoly
1: i mean define natural in, in in that context uh, like, uh, again, a monopoly is defined as the exclusive right or privilege to provide a certain service, mm-hmm. meaning that new market participants are are forcefully excluded from, from entering the market. Um, that's not a natural thing, uh, it, you know, in the sense of of it, that never happens uh, right. in, in our nature. It happens all the time in our nature that new people pop up to solve problems uh, all the time. Um, so, uh, but in the sense that... In the human experiment or experience, have states tended to appear? And these uh, thugs who claim to be the biggest guy on the block, well, sure, yes, they do appear. Uh, So is it natural or is it nature? Is it conditioning? Who knows?
0: Yeah, that's where the lines blur. So it seems like, you know, governments are effectively suppressing competition and discovery in the market for defense and they also do that in the market for money because money is just the most powerful tool for controlling people or the most effective means let's say for controlling people um i mean that seems so hard to disentangle because you're saying that the very service provider of defense like clearly they're going to if they're being competitive in the sphere of defense then they're going to you know attack or suppress their competition as best they can just like any other entrepreneur in any industry it just so happens in the sphere of violence though that it involves coercion right you're not just competing with them based on supply and demand and customer satisfaction in the marketplace there's actually a, a, a involuntary violent or coercive exchange occurring Exactly. Why
1: is personal protection any different from personal education or from personal cooking you know, or from personal fitness advice? You know, there's there's a lot of services um, and giving just, you know, this blanket state of yeah, just the government will do it is, is a bit odd because, you know, there's a plethora of potential solutions to any given problem, including that of physical security. Uh, and how are you gonna solve that with a blanket statement? Like, not everyone needs to have, you know, a full bodyguard of, of fifteen soldiers by their sides all the time. You know, helicopters scouting the area—that's mm-hmm. probably overkill, right? So we need to figure out how much defense, and how are you gonna solve that in a socialist market without prices? Uh, thanks, uh, because there is no uh, private property and no exchange, right? And and how are you gonna? even fulfill all that demand even if you knew it right uh, it, just that one entity alone should provide all the protection services all the way from from huge geographical defense all the way to personal or, or even uh, you know storage defense physical defense of, of mm-hmm. warehouses and stuff like that that all of this be provided by one person and that one person to know exactly what to do uh, and, and which problems or, or which defense problems to solve at priority and uh, to be able to make that decision uh, that's a very spectacular claim that that will work out well.
0: So did the law i mean the centralized top-down nation state did this just emerge as a consequence of industrial age technological realities? And could we conceive of other nation states as basically just competitors in the market for defense?
1: That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess, I guess one way to spin it to, to also your earlier question is that because the defense of property was cheap at a centralized point, it was very cheap to attack that centralized point and gain a big benefit. You know, you could steal from a central target and then manipulate the entire large market area. Um, so basically, there was no good defense. And therefore, the incentive was for there to be more large-scale theft than otherwise would have been. Um, I, I, I'm guessing that that is is somewhat reasonable. Um, but... <laughs> Is it only gold's fault, you know, that that we had so much, so much uh, warfare and nation states? Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, we see with with a fiat empire, for example, uh, that nation states tend to grow much larger and at a much more rapid scale. It's difficult to analyze history like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many
0: factors. So let me uh, let me try to propose a thought experiment. I've been grappling with recently so we've already firmly established that property and person are the same thing effectively right you are your own property you are your own most personal form of property and that private property emerges as an extension of that self-ownership which is like this a priori truth you own yourself only you can move your arms and legs etc if we just hypothetically imagined somehow that everyone in the world was totally invincible and impervious to physical harm, which is to say their own property in themselves was completely inviolable. Like you couldn't hurt me. You can't kill me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Maybe we'll just leave out the private property extension for a moment, but if you just had that, if everyone was invincible, clearly the state would be totally irrelevant at that point, even on its own, if it's ostensibly there to provide security, security would be full, would not be necessary. Everyone's in, invincible, right? And further to that point, it's like who would ever couple themselves in one political body where if there's a difference of opinion, you just go elsewhere, right? Like there's no reason to. There's no need for security because everyone's invincible. So there's no nation state model. So everyone's kind of like this ideal sovereign individual. And so, all right, sorry, I'm struggling to say this. My, my The thought experiment I'm proposing is that the further we move along that spectrum to where if we're perfectly invincible, we have perfectly inviolable property, let's just say in our person, the closer we move to that ideal state, the less relevant government is. Basically. So we could also say that the the more cost-effective we can defend property, the less relevant the business model of the state is.
1: That is true insofar that the definition of the quote-unquote business model of the state is to break property. So if yep. you have invincible or, or, or um, how did you call it? Uh, invincible property rights? No
0: invulnerable people i guess yeah.
1: <laughs> invulnerable people yeah great yeah. um uh, that then indeed the state becomes well meaningless um because ultimately the state is a thief if you cannot be stolen from ergo there is no state uh, yes. so so i guess that's that's a that's a true statement but again it it, it doesn't really hold in the differentiation of you know common thief and state mm-hmm. you know your thought experiment uh, treats both examples the same way, you know, even though they're very different. Uh, and again, this, the, the state is uh, so with, with, you know, with a small scale thief, uh, he can, he can still rob from you, um, and, and make your life miserable. Um, but for one, he doesn't do so at a large scale. Um, so I, I guess scale is, is one definition of, of a thief, uh, sorry, of the state. But then also, it's it's that the the thief does not, or the, the highway robber does not, kind of pretend to do you something good, mm-hmm. right? he doesn't spin this whole mythology about the the state granted um, privileges that are handed out like security or healthcare or transportation. You know? um, he doesn't pretend that in order to 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 rob you, you know, he he actually benefits you. Um, uh, so this this is kind of what Rothbard pointed out earlier in this chapter, right? That the state is kind of this this great myth that that was spun up, um, and that this is one key differentiation. Uh, and again, in, in your thought experiment, I'm not sure if that differentiation is made. I'm not sure if that's important, though.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you on that. So the and this gives back to the point where a free market actor can defend against or insure themselves against sporadic criminal activity like being robbed or things like this but when it when it's systemized when the political means of wealth acquisition is systemized as oppenheimer says you cannot insure against that right it's it's institutionalized it's legalized you're just you're completely subject to the whim of the the authority um
1: Quick, quick thing, you cannot insure against this in the white market. You can very much insure against
0: this in the black market. Correct. That's a, that's a key differentiator. So I guess the, but the state is losing, again, the further we move along that continuum towards inviolable property, the state is losing its capacity to draw those lines around the quote unquote white market and black market. Right. Because it's just less relevant, less able to coerce, less able to generate revenues. Therefore, it's a smaller enterprise. So it seems like the, I mean, (laughs) try to bring this back to Bitcoin. Our aim as free market actors has to be to make capital that's harder to steal, right? More abundant, harder to steal. I guess this could be both the capital we're making and the systems we're using to uh, trade that capital and, and allocate it. Um, that seems to me like what the founding values of the U S constitution are based on like this limited government, decentralized government, you know, democracy, all of these things are sort of aimed at what free market principles are really trying to get at, which is to make property unassailable and therefore the state unnecessary.
1: Yeah, so I think that's in generally a good strategy. Um, and the and I, I think it was worth trying to uh, this limited state idea um, because you know it, it does seem right. It, it's basically the big question of can we trust third parties? Mm. <laughs> you know that's that's basically the the big question. You know if we all you know hand over our power to this third entity and therefore we're all kind of sheep and we cannot hurt each other. Uh, because there's always a higher power above us. Um, that that would work out nice. And and it does. It does, as long as that third party remains honest and, and mm-hmm. in good faith. The question just what's what's the game theory? Once you right. have the ultimate power to allocate every scarce resource to whatever you seek fit, how are you gonna use that power? Mm-hmm. And 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 there are no limitations that you could set to that power. This is limitless power. Um right and th- that's I think why why limited government ultimately fails the the incentive is once you've got it all you're just going to make sure that that first of all you use that power of resource allocation you will want to meddle in all types of things that's of course deal real property that's of course relocate people that's to uh, you know go into slave uh, labor and, and things like this yeah. uh, that's all just uh, or to, to meddle with you know resource shipments and uh, resource allocation in all shapes and forms right um and and that's the other thing, right? If if you try to impose that limitation with state-created entities, like, for example, a Supreme Court, right? So the Supreme Court is staffed by, by state, the state leaders, right? The president, I believe. Um, and he's, he's paid by taxes, right? So by tax revenue, uh, the, the Supreme courts. So are, they have zero interest to limit the state authority because they are the authority of the state. They are right. the Supreme Court is the the ultimate of the ultimate in terms of resource allocation. They get to say what's what's right and and what's wrong and who has to pay up, and so that's a that's a massive power uh, and that power will not restrict itself. Uh, humans are too greedy for that.
0: Yeah, I think this is really important. That uh, maybe this is a key point that helped me grapple with it. Maybe it helps others. Every human organization is a business. Like we commonly call, oh, the state or this institution or this Supreme Court or this or that. But they're all businesses, ultimately. If they're not creating a bottom line for someone, then they don't exist, right? So yeah, I think you have to think about it in these terms. Um, and it seems like... Well, I'm going to read an excerpt here where, in my opinion, Rothbard is explaining this, the state as a business effectively, and why it is impossible to have limited government. Basically, and this will be, well, clearly he's not writing about Bitcoin. This is written before Bitcoin, but I would hold out the proposition that limited government is impossible without Bitcoin. So let me read his excerpt. The more the course of powers of the state are expanded beyond the cherished limits of the laissez-faire theorist, the greater the power and pelf accruing to the ruling caste operating the state apparatus. Hence, the ruling caste, eager to maximize its power and wealth, will stretch state power and will encounter only feeble opposition, given the legitimacy it and its allied intellectuals are gaining, and given the lack of any institutional free market channels of resistance to the government's monopoly of coercion and the power of ultimate decision-making. On the free market, it is a happy fact that the maximization of wealth of one person or group redounds to the benefit of all. But in the political realm, the realm of the state, a maximization of income and wealth can only accrue parasitically to the state and its rulers at the expense of the rest of society. So isn't Bitcoin that institutional free market channel of resistance that we've been lacking to hold the state in check since time immemorial? It's a big question. And it, it
1: might be true for money. Um, but you see, no, actually, I think... I think it's not really logically sound. Um, That's actually an interesting paradox in Bitcoin. So if we are under attack, we need to share risks. If we want to share risks in the Bitcoin security model, we need to have many nodes defining, verifying, and enforcing monetary rules. And we need to have many miners uh, competing to create the time-ordered list of transactions in Bitcoin blocks. A higher risk sharing here, a higher decentralization sums up to a a larger capital cost. We'll have more verification computation and we have more hashing computation, Mm -hmm. making the system more expensive, meaning that at a time where where the system comes under attack, um, it, it is very expensive to, or it is very expensive to operate the network, period regardless of whether it is at attack or not. If it is at attack, then the expenses paid is substantially larger than the, the payment for the attack. So it is exponentially more expensive to attack Bitcoin rather than it is to, to keep up the Bitcoin network. And that's mainly because of risk sharing among node operators and miners, Mm -hmm. um, that, that disturbs the cost throughout the network. However, at a time of peace, that huge cost of decentralization is still present. And if the system ought to continue to function in order to be available for potential future attack, we need to deploy capital today in order to make it secure. And that's one long argument to say that we might need to burn capital to actually be not profitable entrepreneurs it, it, to be to mine at a loss you know to be miners who, who who don't earn more than they spend in electricity and hardware and such um in order to have a stable security for for the bitcoin network so so even this stays, right that that if we would come to a to a, a stage where where bitcoin has limited the government to an extent that it is no longer actively attacking the property rights in Bitcoin, then the utility of Bitcoin decreases uh, because there is no more attack. But the cost of Bitcoin persists, meaning it might become a more and more unfavorable, a more and more capital depreciation venture that ultimately is not sustainable. And then at that point where where Bitcoin would fail, it would, or where, where, where the Bitcoin security cost is so low that a rather low cost of attack from that quote-unquote limited state would become profitable again. So, you know, it's that's kind of the thing. Liberty is expensive. Protecting your rights is expensive. It has always been, and it will always be. And because it's that expensive, people, ex- people don't defend their property, and that's when they get it stolen from. Mm-hmm. So reducing the cost of defense is is uh, very much the most important strategy.
0: I really I like that framework you're approaching it through because it almost puts, it gives us a window through which to evaluate Bitcoin mining and government equally, right? Just the cost of providing security. Um, and so, so what you're saying here is that an attack. Makes the network more expensive, so it's increasing demand for network security, right? So the the cost of the Bitcoin network would go up when it's attacked. But if it succeeds ultimately, and there's no you know coercion, it's basically radically disincentivized coercion as a viable economic strategy. Then the co- the Actual cost of attack on Bitcoin would decline, right? Because there wasn't, a, there's not a lot of, I guess, demand to attack it. Um, so does that end up becoming a sub? That becomes like a dynamic economic mechanism for Bitcoin, where it's if we need decentralization, trust minimization, coercion resistance, that the demand for Bitcoin will rise. But then in those instances where we're in a high trust environment the demand for Bitcoin will fall, but if it falls too low, then it creates incentives for someone to attack. So is it, is this just something that it's kind of like taxes, right? we we said (laughs) death and taxes are certain there's a tax that has to be paid to Bitcoin, I guess, to ensure freedom.
1: That is, is really one future scenario that I can envision Um, that mines need to be operated at a loss. Um, I believe currently, you might argue that full nodes are already operated at a loss. Um, it, well, I mean, I guess running full nodes is part of demurrage—the cost of holding money, or at least the cost of receiving money uh, in Bitcoin. So yes, that is capital depreciation. Um, but but the the cost of Bitcoin mining um, is is interestingly linked to to security, and interestingly linked to demand. Um, so, but that's all just to say that uh, the number go up uh, technologies is, is kind of a fallacial uh, approach. There, there are downward pressures on Bitcoin price, uh, numerous, uh, and these are just some.
0: How would we have Bitcoin miners operating at a loss in a world where wealth cannot be est- extracted coercively? in my mind those guys would just go out of business and only the profitable would survive so how like there's no subsidies in this hypothetical bitcoinized future so how how would that work
1: well unfortunately basically with charity you need to put your own capital on the line um that's that's kind of the speculation here uh that as of right now people are spending big spending capital to receive and to hold Bitcoin by running a full node, uh, people will spend money to well, um, secure the Bitcoin block production. Um, that uh, that's a big uncertainty, right? And, and, and as you see, um, the game theory becomes shabby, like right now, the game theory is solid because pe- because miners get paid a massive amount of subsidy in, mm-hmm. in forms of issuance rate, new Bitcoin unlocked. And in terms of transaction fees. And, but uh, subsidy runs out, and potentially, especially if Bitcoin is in low demand, then transaction fee run low, um, meaning that there's very little revenue, uh, if not zero, uh, which which can very much happen. Um, so in, in that inevitable scenario, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Um, but yeah, ultimately, again, it is possible for individuals to burn their capital to to create blocks. Um, to to forward the Bitcoin time chain. Hmm. And that possibility alone is already great. Now, the question is, can we structure game theory incentives around that block production being reliable? It's a whole other question. In fact, that Satoshi figured it out is fucking genius. Um, but it only, yeah, I'm not sure if it works in the long run like these are some of the big questions that very few bitcoiners i think can truly answer definitely like with yeah no we're we're good uh, i'm not sure if we're good
0: hmm. so there's doubt surrounding rather whether or not transaction fees alone would be adequate to support the security budget of bitcoin yes Uh, the one advantage, I guess, Bitcoin has is that I get, presu- I mean, correct me where I'm wrong. Presumably the block subsidy is sufficient for at least the next few decades. Like when does this become an issue? I guess would be my question. That will the market tell you,
1: uh, hmm. uh very difficult to predict that, that type of hmm. stuff. Um, you know, uh, because again we're we're at an exponentially decreasing subsidy rate as well and mm-hmm. so that exponentially changes incentives too um i don't know when um, but you know as of now uh, the demand of bitcoin does not tend to decrease much <laughs> right yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so so as of now i'm, I'm very little worried uh, you know <laughs> this this is 150 years from now future talk and yeah. who knows who knows you know
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't, I've thought about it a little bit, but not, that was kind of the conclusion I reached is that it seems like it'll be okay, but in any case, it's not something we have to worry about for, it seems like a while.
1: Um, So I I guess ultimately, if people want to have Bitcoin, Bitcoin will succeed. I I think that's a true statement. Um, The question is, how much capital are they willing to, to spend in order to, have a successful Bitcoin? Um, that's a very interesting question. Hmm. Um, that's very subjective. Uh, that's why you cannot predict it, especially not for future humans,
0: you know? Right. Yeah. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is NIDIG. NIDIG's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I'm going to lead us back in. With another excerpt here. So Rothbard says, quote, Given the unchecked power of the state, the state and its rulers will act to maximize their power and wealth and hence inexorably expand beyond the supposed limits. The crucial point is that the utopia of limited government and laissez-faire, there are no institutional mechanisms to keep the state limited. Surely the bloody record of states throughout history should have demonstrated that any power once granted or acquired will be used and therefore abused. Power corrupts as the libertarian Lord Acton so wisely noted. Um, So, I mean, I guess my, my simplified view here is that... The state always emerged historically because it was a viable business strategy for acquiring wealth. Force could be wielded to acquire the work of others, basically. And there was no, instant. as Rothbard writes here, there's no institutional mechanism to keep the state limited so if the state must emerge and it cannot remain limited then that is this boom and bust state cycle we've seen across history right the rise of a great civilization until it becomes rigid tyrannical oppressive and then it you know implodes or is overthrown or you know there's some social revolution beneath it that results in a new state or states
1: that's that's interesting. Um, that's a bit similar to to what Mises says with the middle of the road leads to socialism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, that once you ha- once you meddle with the market force in in even one small way, the some supply chain factors will change in a way that you did not expect it, and you will need to react. And now you either react with more freedom, meaning you remove price controls. Or with more author- authoritarianism, you you enact more price controls on on those uh, supply chain goods and so on, right? So ultimately, um, kind of if there is no if the checks on the government here don't apply, you would continue down the road to socialism uh, until all property is uh, is nationalized. Um, so that's that's kind of similar
0: here. Yeah, and is this somehow hmm. what well, the, the image that I'm having in mind here is we either have a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle of some kind. Yeah. So,
1: so what you're, so you're proposing basically, um, because so, so to kind of cut the cycle out at, at the first place, right. You, you make the creation of a new state difficult or costly, uh, or, or prohibited all entirely. Um, and then, therefore, you don't need to establish checks and balances, and therefore the cycle won't repeat itself.
0: Well, you know, I don't know that I don't want to speak in absolutes and say it completes itself, but if I'm just thinking through the lens of that thought experiment where perfectly inviolable property, which is to say the cost of violating property goes to infinity, then the state business model of violating property goes to zero right? You can't generate any revenues as a state if you can't violate property. So clearly, we're never going to get there. You're never going to make humans invincible. But we can create forms of capital that are more expensive to violate property that's more expensive to violate, let's say. And that is the economic dial that turns down the necessity and relevance of the state.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so you're basically saying a kind of economic limit uh, to to the government, right? A, a limited war chest, so to say.
0: Yeah, which is a you know uh-huh. a, a rough corollary of what the gold standard provided historically, right?
1: Hmm. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. The I mean, that's that's
1: super interesting, but I, I think Bitcoin does not fill like live up to your expectations, uh, in the, in the sense, um, you know, because the, like it, it works in, in your scenario, it, it works against petty thieves, but I'm not sure if it would work for, for governments. Like, uh, I mean, or no, actually in your thought experiment, you're correct, but I'm not sure that Bitcoin like lives up to the thought experiment. You know, um, because for example, Bitcoin does not, like Bitcoin does only very few things and a lot of things it does not. What it does not do is prohibit people to create substitute goods, right? You can spin up your own shitcoin. A Bitcoin does not prevent that. A miner does not prevent that, right? And the state can do so too. Um, And he can use its its legal machinery to uh, enact legal tender and therefore capitalize on senior rush. And therefore, steal from you. Um, but again, Bitcoin cannot prevent that, right? So, um, the, the the existence of the state is, I think, more than just the 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 violence and the stealing. Like, yes, that's the core kind of defining part of it. But on top of that, I think it's it's that it's just a, you know, to to do so with the uh, like common sense justification. You know, to say that no it's it's all right that the state can steal that much uh, like that if if that is the common mindset then the state still lives, lives in the mind of the people who, who think that there there is such a thing as the authority to steal um, And the question is if Bitcoin can change that uh, and I don't think it can
0: Okay, well, when I game it out in my mind, it's like okay. Cool. Bitcoin can give people an option to hold their money in something that is independent of state that the opinions of statesmen, let's say. Uh, in particular, you know, the inflation, frankly, you get you get to hold a money that's immune to opinion or immune to bureaucratic whim. If the state now cannot remain limited, as Rothbard's pretty uh, solidly making the case here, that there's no such thing as limited government. It's a business. It wants to grow. The core operating activities of the state are compulsion, coercion, violence. They're going to keep violating more and more property to grow. This, this government that would, cannot be limited by anything other than economic reality. Isn't that just going to create more and more of an incentive for people to adopt Bitcoin? It's like if I want to immunize myself from the predations of this unlimited organization, this this organization that grows without limit, the government, then I need to hold my wealth in this confiscation resistant asset. So what I'm getting at is it seems to me like the very pressures, economic pressures that are causing the state to grow, force it into this uh, wall of Bitcoin in a way, where assuming people have the wherewithal and the option, they're going to choose to hold Bitcoin over any shitcoin or fiat currency or even gold. So by that mechanism, does Bitcoin then provide some regulation on state growth? That's very interesting.
1: Uh, and it it made me think that the Bitcoin security model has uh, a couple assumptions, axioms, right? Things that we assume to be true without proving them in the model. Um, and one of them is the axiom of resistance, meaning that it is possible for individuals to resist a state order um, to break the law. Literally, right. that is what permissionless means. That is what black market means. Um, so the... F- The fact that the Bitcoin system has the assumption of of individual resistance in in its definition and because we actually see Bitcoin working, that is a proof that resistance is possible, right? Um, And and it it has been possible since 2009, you know, uh, and arguably before that. I cannot make a nice proof of it before Genesis, but I can with Genesis. Um, so but that that means basically that that also the the protection is is only afforded to those who do resist people who who don't resist do not have a secure bitcoin people who would who would uh fulfill any government order without question have zero protection from bitcoin because as soon as the order comes in of send me your bitcoin they will do it um and and then that's it right so yes, Bitcoin curves the state in the sense that it, it reduces the, it provide, it it is a tool for people who already want to resist the state basically. And the more people do that, the, the less, um, obedient, uh, people are left in the state, which can be easily exploited, which are then therefore exploited <laughs> and, and the, the state grows. Now, the question is, will we ever be at a 100% resistance ratio? Um, And arguably, no.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. There's always going to be people that just completely follow the letter of the law to a T. Um, But the other variable that I have in mind here is that the more you increase that ratio of resistance, as you call it, so let's say resistant market actors to non-resistant market actors, this is actually inducing uh, a defunding of the state as well. right? The more people holding their Mm -hmm. savings and wealth in Bitcoin, this is wealth that is unassailable by the state, uninflatable. So their, their tax base has shrunk. Right, So the higher the resistance ratio, the smaller the tax base, you could say. Smaller the tax base, the smaller the state, presumably. Um, so it seems like a limiting factor. I don't know. I'm having a hard it, it, time. I think it is a limiting factor.
1: The, the question just is, is an, an extinguishing factor. Uh, yes. you know, does the existence of Bitcoin um, end the concept of, of this nation state or end the concept of the state, um, and here, here is where I kind of have my quarrel. Here's like where I'm like, let's not be too bullish. <laughs> like, right. sure, Bitcoin's great, but you know, let, let's keep it real. Um, but the that, that there is a limiting factor uh, or a, a downward pressure on the state now. Yes, absolutely. Um, Bitcoin is that opportunity cost that was not there before, uh, and it has to be considered by all actors, uh, including politicians. And and the game for politicians changed drastically. Um, and there, there will be consequences to that. And and yes, their tax base is shrinking at an alarming rate, while a lot of debts are coming due. And how the state is going to repay that? Um, good question. Uh, you know, state debt is always just a uh, a postponement of tax event, um, meaning that a lot of taxes need to be done now, uh, while the tax base is shrinking. And that's basically a liquidity crunch, right? This this is. Uh, when when they need to increase the debt ceiling again that that great limitation on government power
0: (laughs) that ceiling that is as high as heaven itself